0: Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, wing. talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi folks,
1: it's Rena Jadaf here with the Healthier Podcast and founder of the Heal Circle Foundation, HealCircle.org. Now, you all know my story, right? So I had a couple of health crises, got my health back, but I'll tell you the hardest, hardest thing that I had to deal with was getting my mind, my naughty monkey mind under control because I knew what I needed to do you know, I needed to eat healthier, I needed to stop eating sugar, I needed to stop eating processed foods. No, The mind, the mind said, nope, we need our brownie, Rena, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> They're lying to you, food has nothing to do with it, well, and to tell us how we can control our mind and how can we get better behavior change is with me today, Dr. Simon Marshall, he is highly accomplished. He is the co-founder of the Brave Heart Coaching Institution, and he's going to tell us today how we can get our minds into control. Dr. Simon, welcome.
0: Thank you, Rina. It's so lovely to join you and be uh, connected in spirit of your organization as well. Um, I've spent uh, probably 20 years or so working in public health and the role of psychology in medicine and recovery in general, in addition to how you can optimise mindset to get the best out of yourself. So in what we call performance environments, so this is for athletes or performers or just people who are trying to make sure that that unruly chimp in their head doesn't really sabotage you. And so you're doing things that are most in line with happiness, wellness and confidence. So I spent 12 years as a professor of behavioural medicine in universities in San Diego here, down uh, at the University of California, San Diego, and then left uh, a few years to do some consulting and writing full-time about uh, how we start to implement some behavior changes, some of these principles into our daily lives. So thank you for letting me uh, come on your show.
1: Well, you've done some amazing work, some incredible research, and our goal is to equip our tribe with the right tools and techniques so they can start to execute on what they already know they need to do. So thank you so much for making time with us today. All right, well, let's get started. You know, There's so many different directions we could start in, but I want to start with something very basic, which is how fundamentally important is working on the mind in order to get healthy? What have you found in your research?
0: Yeah, well, the the, the issue, the funny thing about anything to do with the black box, the three pound lump that sits on our shoulders, is that it's really the only way that we interpret and perceive the world, right? So uh, on the one hand, there are some very neurological components to it, some sort of neural connections and uh, brain biology. But there's also these sort of abstracts, the nebulous hard to pin down concepts like confidence and motivation and so on. So it's the intersection really of Sort of social science and psychology, with now some of the more more recent neuroscientific research that leads us to a position that we know a lot more now than we ever did about what works to change people's behaviour, what helps us be motivated and confident, and ultimately do things that are really difficult for us. So it's a really interesting place to to start. And one of I think one of the key points uh, that it's worth kicking off with, and this is a lesson that we've learned very recently from some of the neuroscience research is that we don't have as much control over our thoughts and feelings as we thought we did. Um, whole schools of psychotherapy and clinical psychology, for example, you may be familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. and some of the mainstream therapies, a lot of them work like whack-a-mole approaches to, yeah. to psychology, like you have a, a thought that you don't want, a feeling that you don't want, you try and confront it with rational logic and then you replace it with something positive that you hope sticks. And we know that 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 method is remarkably effective for many conditions under many situations, but we know that it's also not enough. And partly because we've now learned that we're not in as much control as we thought we were with regard to how we think and feel. So that's usually the starting point. And many people come to me or come to uh, places where they're hoping to learn about how they can improve their mindset Either guilty or embarrassed, that they can't get a handle on this, or there's some level of guilt or shame or weakness that what is it about me? It's a willpower issue. They see it as a willpower issue for them. And we know in, from years of behavioral medicine now that changing uh, behaviors to be more healthy is not a knowledge deficit problem.
1: Exactly. Most,
0: most of us know exactly. what we need to do. We need to move more, have a healthier diet, sleep well, have good stress management. So the problem is why is it, what is it that it gets in the way of us? if I know what to do, why is it that I can't actually do it? Exactly. And to that we turn to some neuroscience. I guess that's the exciting part.
1: And we're gonna talk about that in just a moment. And this is where it's something you just said is just so critical, which is, it is not a willpower issue. I think most people give up because they say, well, I tried and it didn't work. I just don't, I'm not strong enough, right? I hear that a lot. I'm just not strong enough. Like I need my glass of wine every night. No you don't understand Rena, I won't make it unless I have my glass of wine, or I need my as I used to say, no, I need my brownie, I need my daily brownie fixer I need my which everybody can relate. do I need my Starbucks fix right right, right. get out of bed and go straight to Starbucks and get our little shot of drug um, before we proceed with our day and the assumption is that somehow we can't because I don't have the willpower I'm not strong and i'm so glad you said that right away. That it really isn't a willpower issue. It's something far deeper than that, and it's not just about trying to force your way into behavior change. You can't do it forcibly. You have to right. understand the art and the science behind behavior change. So let's dive into that. Um, and again, if you're listening to this or watching this, I think the first thing you want to tell yourself is, "It's not my fault. I just didn't know the science." and so I'm going to listen to this today with an open mind to understand what is the science of behavior change because mm-hmm. I know I need to have more salad and now I'm gonna learn the tools and techniques that are gonna help me eat and enjoy that salad uh, without it being a battle every single lunch break. So let's That's start.
0: exactly right. <laughs> well, one thing I'll start by saying is, and this is where public health has actually gone wrong over the last, we've now sort of corrected some of these habits or behaviors that we've had, is that one of the concerns was that, okay, it's not a knowledge deficit problem. We now know that. We also know that scaring people into change, as psychologists talk about fear appeals, appealing to some sense of scarediness, that, oh my God, this is gonna happen to me if I don't change. And what we know that happens when you do that, when you try and show billboards of people, we're trying to get them to wear seat belts, not text and drive, eat healthier, name the health behavior that you want. When you try and scare people into changing, what it does, it whips them into some sort of motivational frenzy to begin with, and they hyper alert to why they need to change. But then over time, that not only does that kind of recede back to normal levels, but actually you can make the problem worse. So what people do in an an attempt to sort of reduce the anxiety in your head and the human brain is a wonderful organ for trying to resolve conflict inside and it has all of these great strategies and tricks it plays on itself to convince you that what you're doing, you've earned, it's the right thing to do and so on. We do that with information that we hear that we don't want to hear either about our health. So we go into denial about things, we double down and when faced with objective evidence, we don't just simply change our behavior, and the, the background of that is simply because uh, we are, uh, the human brain is not as rational an, an organ as we thought it was. We, history and now the research is littered with examples where we a- actively sabotage our own health, we make decisions and do things that are against our own self-interest. But somehow in brain world, we've come up with a reason or an explanation about why this is the right course of action. So the starting point for helping people overcome that is trying to recognize some of the tricks that your own brain plays on you to retain the status quo, to not change, to do the easy option, to do the thing that is hacked in, that's already hacked your dopamine reward system that feels good. And so it's really less about control and about managing this kind of unruly force in your head so that you can start to see it for what it is and to start to learn to how to get through some of the tricks that it's trying to play on you.
1: It's understanding that it's not you, it's it's a naughty little kid, um, and you've got to learn how to manage it, and that's where I think, for those of us who meditate, you know, it, the dramatic difference of pre-meditation, post-meditation is measured. Oh, in terms it's huge. It's yeah, important
0: yeah. just to spend just a minute to talk about what's happening in brain world when we get these uncomfortable thoughts and feelings or the sabotaging thoughts or the denial or the need for reward and all of the signs point towards a part of our brain called the limbic system and the limbic system some of us have heard of elements in the limbic system like the hypothalamus and the pituitary and, and the amygdala and so on but it's the most primitive Part of our brains. It's about a little bit, little bit bigger than an avocado, right in the centre of your head. It's been with us for hundreds of thousands of years, and it's wired with one main goal: is to keep you alive. It will scream and shout, and the way that your limbic system screams and shouts is that it, con- it, it um, communicates with your adrenal glands and your hippocampus and your hypothalamus to set off a c- cascade of hormonal and neurotransmitter reactions to make sure that you listen to it. So this part of our brain is really motivated to keep you alive. And it's been given two exceptionally powerful weapons, from an evolutionary perspective, two really powerful tools to make sure that we listen to it. The first is that it processes information from our senses, our, our, our eyes, our ears, our touch, five times quicker than our frontal cortex. This is the frontal cortex is the rational thinking you. So the limbic system, which is the emotional reacting brain, it's not the real you, it's this kind of little chip, we call it a chimp living inside of you. So it's already processing things in your environment that you can see, you can hear, you can touch at lightning speed before your frontal cortex, the real you, has had a chance to think, hang on a minute, should I have that or do I want that? And a cascade of hormones and neurotransmitters are already rolling to get you closer and closer to putting your hand in the metaphorical cookie jar. So that's the first weapon it's been given five times stronger, and that that makes sense because it needs to be on high alert to detect threats so you can run or hide or the fight or flight response. Now the second real main uh, uh, weapon it's been given is that the moment it detects something it really loves or it's a threat to you, it wants, to do its, it wants to get its urge or needs fulfilled. It throws a chemical brick at the rest of your brain. About 30 neurotransmitters are released into your frontal cortex to stop you, make, even stop you even more making rational decisions. So now we've got this part of our brain, our chimp brain, our limbic system, that is motivated by getting all its main needs met, its physical needs met, hunger, thirst, sex, security, all those that we know of already. But it's also very motivated to stop us feeling either humiliated, embarrassed, or inadequate. That's the whole trinity of the things that your brain, your limbic system, is scared to death of. And the reason it's scared is because hundreds of thousands of years ago, if we were humiliated, embarrassed, or inadequate, we got ostracized from the troop, we had to forage for food for ourselves, we had to defend ourselves, and it often did mean a fairly lonely and painful death. But, but now, for most of us living in the suburbs, uh, those threats don't materialize, but we've got this part of our brain that the wiring hasn't really changed for hundreds of thousands of years. So whenever you feel urges or cravings, most of those are coming, originating from a very powerful part of your brain called the limbic system. And that's the, the part that we need to manage the most if we're going to get a handle on our, on, on our health.
1: That's uh, brilliant, because once we've identified where the problem erupts, we can now deal with that in a focused way instead <laughs> of randomly trying all these things that don't work. From my own experience, because I have an addictive personality and I love my sugar and my brownies, um, what I've learned is that whenever I start to fall off the wagon, as they say, it's because there is an added stress in my life. Whether it's because suddenly my to-do list has tripled and it's not getting smaller, or I've got some really critical things coming up and I'm feeling sort of nervous about those. Whatever it is, to your point there's a signal that my mind is sending to the limbic brain saying, oh she's worried, she's stressed, let's, let's feed her, let's feed her some sugar, let's feed her some brownies, because it looks like she's in danger. And so for me what I learned was that breathing, that right breathing technique, which tells your body everything is okay, which is incredibly slow breathing up, and then you pause, and then deeper breathing out, and then you pause does help me reset when I'm going into those sort of craving urges it just helps me manage that and within five to ten minutes my cravings are
0: gone. Absolutely it does in fact that's where cravings really come from it comes from a limbic system and it's a a limbic system is a very complex combination of structures and 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 brain anatomy but in essence it's really where those primal needs are being met. And because the human brain really hates being in conflict, in fact, there's a concept in psychology called cognitive dissonance. It's a very fancy way of saying that every decision we make in life, there are two sides to it. Even things on the face of it that seem obvious, like someone to give up smoking, it's obvious, All there's, no, there's very few pros of smoking, but when you speak to people uh, who are addicted to nicotine and they're lifelong smokers, there are clearly reasons that they keep on smoking. Some of them are, you know, uh, uh, neurochemical-based, some of them are comfort-based, some of are social-based, some are just habits. So what we need to try and do is to figure out how we start to intercept this communication between our limbic system, chimp brain, and our rational thinking, cortex so that this is the part of our brain that's responsible for planning analyzing goal setting any higher order function analysis when you think about what you're trying to do in life and how you're trying to meet those goals that's all frontal cortex but it's living its closest neighbor is an 800 pound gorilla that has these evolutionally endowed weapons to make sure that it always gets marginalized So cognitive dissonance as a concept is when, behind every challenge or decision we have in life, there are two sides and those two sides live in our heads. And because the brain doesn't like having conflict, internal conflict, it will do everything in its power to reconcile, to make one list. The thing ultimately is the chimp brain that wins. So when I come home from work and I see that half open bottle of wine staring back at me saying, you know, Drink me, drink me, drink and me, drink
1: my, me,, drink
0: me, and my rational brain is saying, and my, and my, it 's all chimp, oh my God, it will taste good relax, and all the memories of what that feels like to have a dr- first drink are fantastic, and then. My frontal cortex, my rational analytical brain gets hijacked by those powerful urges because it's five times stronger and five times quicker. And then I start to rationalize. Well, you know, I have had a hard day and it's been really stressful. God, you've got to have some rewards and pleasures in life. There are so few left now. And just the So I start to rationalize it because no. I've, got, I've got dissonance in my own head that's saying, trying to cut down. You know that you're One glass isn't going to kill me. One, One glass isn't going to kill me, and on and on and on. And eventually, guess which side usually wins. It co-opts your analytical brain by bringing it in and coming up with great reasons, excuses, or explanations of why. And it ends up doing what it's wanted to do all along. So that's that's what we really have to sort of uh, intervene on. And so when I I ask people, and the easiest way to know whether you've been taken over by your chimp brain, who is running you at any one particular time, is ask yourself a fairly simple question. At any particular moment, do I want to think or feel like I do now? And if the answer is no, for example, I I really want that glass of wine, but I'd love to be able to say I'm indifferent to it. No, I'm not going to do it or something. I want to feel like that, but I don't. So when I feel as though I are thinking and feeling a certain way, but I don't want to, you've been hijacked by your chimp brain, your limbic system. And the first step to regaining control back is to recognize that you're no longer in control of your own head. And so all of the strategies that we know work, ranging from some in cognitive behavior therapy, right to some other difference of whether it's mindfulness or meditation or acceptance therapy, hypnosis, most of them are trying to hijack or uncouple that relationship. And that's really important to do. And that's really what mindfulness and even breathing does to a certain extent. What breath exercises do is they calm down. They're a parasympathetic effect, are calming down a part of our nervous system that has been amped up by a chimp brain, that level of activation. So by having sort of box breathing or having a, a, a breathing mechanism that helps calm the limbic system down blood flow to the limbic system drops cortisol drops all of these incredible physiologic reactions after you've done these breathing exercises makes your body and brain a lot calmer to then let your frontal cortex your professor brain that we call it because it's analytical and rational and only deals in facts and logic take charge back so being relaxed and calm is one of the first ports of call for getting managing back control back to that sort of rational thinking.
1: All right, let's dive into the tools and techniques. What can people do? So clearly there's recognition that um, there are things people can do to take charge and get on that path to to help easily as opposed to making it into climbing Mount Everest. So what is, and again, there's a lot of details on this, but let's start with what is the easiest thing someone can do and then we can dive into some of the more sophisticated options
0: so one of the easiest things to start with is recognize that you're always throughout your entire life no matter how good you get at like controlling optimizing mindset and health age you're always going to have some element of voice in your head that's telling you oh go on just one it doesn't hurt it won't be that hard And many people feel guilty that they can't eradicate this little negative voice in their head that's screaming at them. And so the starting point is to say it's perfectly normal to have those, that little internal dialogue, that internal voice. That's the first thing. And the strategies seem not to try and fight them back all the time. This this is their whack-a-mole approach Mm -hmm. uh, of like every time I have a negative thought, I've got to replace it with something positive. We don't have nearly as much control over our thoughts and feelings as we first thought. That's what neuroscience has told us. So an acceptance model is far more productive. And an acceptance model is basically saying, listen, I've got all this internal dialogue that's not really helpful to me. And instead of trying to fight it back, like win that battle mentally, I'm gonna learn some skills to turn away from the battle. I'm gonna learn some skills just to turn my back on all of the negativity, all the thinking that's telling me I need it, I've earned it, I've deserved it. And that's really what mindfulness and meditative practice does. It's passive attention training. It's helping you cope with distractions and letting them go without trying to, fix them and solve them and push them down so that's the first part the second piece and this might seem counterintuitive is what we call a chimp purge a chimp purge and what a chimp purge is instead of trying to think oh my god i want that second glass of wine or i want that brownie or i want that bad thing rather than try no go listen to it look in the mirror i'm strong i'm confident i know i can i'm kind of the self-help model it doesn't work because it's a five times quicker and five times stronger. The Acceptance model tells us, okay, instead of trying to do that, what we're gonna do is instead of trying to fight it, but I'm just gonna to listen to that voice. In fact, I'm not just gonna to listen to it, I'm gonna actively encourage it to talk for maybe a couple of minutes. I'm getting, And it sounds like the worst self-talk you've ever heard, because uh-huh. what you're saying to your limb, your limbic system, your chimp brain, you like, say, come on, limbic system, come on, chimp brain, give me what, what you've got. You Why should I, what, what, else, what else, what else, Exactly. And you let it rant and rave and when, and what something quite curious in the brain happens when you do that. So when you let your limbic system rant uninterrupted, and this can be, it can be range from why you deserve this or why it feels good or why you want to. And it can be just things like, you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. You'll never be good enough. You don't deserve this. Look at you. You're overweight. You're not good at work. Everyone, it's all crazy talk. We know it's yeah. not rational. But instead of interrupting it, you let it out and you keep doing this. You can do it by, ju- by journaling. You can do it by saying it in your own head. You can say it out loud if you're on your own, so you don't look as though you have a dissociative personality disorder. <laughs> um, but letting it out is really important. After about three to four minutes, something really weird happens. Blood flow to the limbic system declines. It drops. Cortisol drops. A lot of our stress hormones drop and we think we don't actually know the mechanisms why this is, but one of the thoughts is because when this threat or challenge back to it doesn't materialize when it doesn't get punched back by the, I know I can, I'm strong I'm confident, resist willpower. It sort of tires itself out. And so we often talk about your limbic system, your chip brain sort of goes back to sleep in its cage. It crawls back. It's had its moment and you just listen to it. And so we use this for people who are athletes, for public speakers, for surgeons, for special forces, for people who are dealing with the craving. You just let that negativity run wild and then you set a timer and then you say, OK, when it's run out and I'm saying the same thing over and over again or it's repeating that, I'm now ready to move on with the practical strategies that do help. So that's the that's a really, really important distinction. It's quite a subtle one, because it, yeah. count, it counters conventional wisdom that we Completely. always need to confront everything, any negativity we need to confront with a positive mantra or statement. And the acceptance model says from neuroscience, suggests that that's not only ineffective, there are actually better ways to do it.
1: And I love how simple and easy it is to do at home. Uh, you know, one of the things I tell everyone is, you have to try and see what works for you do not assume what worked for me will work for you or what worked for kim kardashian is going to work for you you know test everything on yourself until you find one that works and so what a great idea what a simple idea you know next time you which probably will happen two hours after you listen to
0: this podcast right
1: (laughs) you'll have you'll experience one of those surges
0: yeah and let it out encourage it bring it out uh and again that's why i'm Exactly. I'm a big advocate journaling as well. There's a lot of research now on the benefits of gratitude journaling and writing thoughts and feelings down so they don't get stuck in your own head. And one of the things, for example, to deal with stress management or to deal with high stress situations is you've got to have an outlet for the thought, the pinball machine that becomes your head. And the outlet can be talking to a, a partner, a therapist, but it could also be writing. It's very cathartic to get some separation between our internal world and the actual objective reality around us. And so that's a really key, key piece to this.
1: Thank you for bringing that up. You know, I would not have healed without journaling to the point where I created the health journal. And again, for those of you, if you're listening, you can get it for free. Just go to healcircle.org. There's a free health journal. You can download it and print it out and use it. Um, because I personally don't think you can make any real transformative change without some form of tracking. It doesn't always have to be in writing. I mean, you could use one of these devices um, for tracking purposes, but for me personally, the journal works great. And the way we created the health journal is it has a section for gratitude. It has a section for what I'm doing, what I'm taking out, what am I changing, and what are my results, how am I feeling. Right. So you're just very quick, couple of words here and there, and you, you've got a good running documentary of how are you progressing day after day. So if your goal is, for example, let's say to go sugar free, we always recommend do our Healthify seven day free Healthify course and go sugar free. Mm-hmm. Well, it's easier to do if you've been tracking and writing and seeing what are you swapping out with during your cravings and I think what, you've given us some wonderful tools and techniques that you can start incorporating and say, did it work, did not work. Yep. What else? So we've talked about journaling, we've got yep. a, talked about suppressing the gym. Yeah. recognizing that this is coming from the limbic system yeah let's get a little more sophisticated what are some of the sure. more like this doesn't work dr simon i've tried yeah
0: tried all okay, that before there. okay so a few things so there are things like that that we know for example coming from the research on cravings so which is a one that many people have and one of the things that seems to work there's preliminary evidence for this is what they call a food neutral visualization and a food-neutral visualization, try saying that when you've had uh, you <laughs> food-neutral visualization, is when you feel an urge or a craving coming on, is to spend 30 seconds. It can be up to a minute, but most people find 30 seconds. Is that you close your eyes and you imagine an environment or a situation that you find particularly pleasant, that is neutral to food or the craving. So it wouldn't be if I'm craving brownies, I, cra- I now visualize celery or whatever. That's not the food. What I might do is I'm, I, I visualize coming home and my dog coming up to greet me, petting my dog, or playing with my kids, or walking out the park, or whatever, it doesn't matter what it is, but it's kind of neutral to food, if, if the craving is about food. And that seems to reduce, certainly some of the, the, the earlier studies show, that seems to reduce cravings sufficiently, to not take you on the next step of the craving, which is actually to start doing the cupboard scanning. And we all, if, a, if I was to put a camera in people's kitchens, what we find doing the moment we feel an urge or a craving, there's a little uh, a spike in dopamine. Our dopamine is not just our reward chemical, but it's also the biological basis for wanting to continue to do something, to seek it out. And so as we think about food or think about our craving, Dopamine the, the, the biochemical snowball that's going to eventually end with us with a hand in the cookie jar is already starting to roll So we have to intercept that process quite early on. So that's why food neutral visualization can really help Some people like to do a small activity. They walk around the block They stand outside they do 10 push-ups or whatever. It can be a distraction, but importantly having a, a, a focused attempt to to um, to distract from that limbic system response that relies on that frontal cortex to kind of tell, okay, I have to think about that. What's a food neutral and so on? Seems to reduce cravings. That can be really important. The next step, and what we've learned, is a little bit about the neurobiology of habits and habit formation. And if you want to create good habits or even stop end bad habits, habits are made up of three key features. You may be already have come across this or you may have discussed in a previous podcast The first element of a habit that all habits have is a cue or a trigger. This is like the starting pistol of any habit. And so to give the example of drinking, I I come home from work, I open the fridge and I see the bottle of wine with the cork in that's half full. That's my trigger or cue to think, oh, oh, I really fancy a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. The trigger might have been something even earlier than that, you know, that I'm walking up the stairs and it's a certain time. It's Friday and it's 6 p.m. And automatically, I know that that means, okay, I can let my hair down a bit. So habit, habit management is about controlling triggers to begin with. So if there are things that you know that you're vulnerable to, the most effective strategy or one of the most effective strategy is to try and eliminate as many triggers for that as possible. And I don't mean that you suddenly start pouring great bottles of wine down the, down, the, down the sink unless you have a drinking problem and that's the goal if you're just trying to mm-hmm. cut down but it might be that you re- restrict your access to it it might be that I keep my alcohol in a cooler in the garage that has a padlock on it and the key to the padlock is in yeah. the attic or the key to the padlock is on a shelf so I have to go upstairs to come back down again you're trying to manage the access right. to that starting pistol of, the, of all habits and that's really really important and most of us, through our, and this is why when you're trying to change people's eating habits, it starts often with a, with a cupboard, pantry exactly. audit and clean out, because exactly. the, biggest, the biggest triggers are the, stare of chip, the flag of chips that's staring back at you. Exactly,
1: as I say, yeah. don't bring it in. If you don't wanna eat it, don't bring it in. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, well, what are you gonna put instead out? You're gonna put out the berries, and you're gonna put out some carrots and hummus. Oh. What's the science on how, how long does it take to change a habit?
0: Habit. Yeah. Well, the science actually is not based on time. It's based on repetition. So oh, okay. we used to think it take, it's, it's not how many, how long does it take? It's how many times does it take to that you have to experience a resistance to that or doing something to, to do it. So there aren't really any hard and fast rules. It varies tremendously by person and by thing that you're doing. If you're trying to practice something on a daily basis, maybe once or twice a day, it's very unrealistic to expect dramatic shifts in, oh my God, I don't miss this anymore, or I'm not, look- I'm not thinking about it. It's, very, it's quite unrealistic to expect much to happen under sort of four to six weeks and for most people it can be up to three months before they finally particularly if there's some sort of neurochemical residue in you like we know for example with alcohol addiction and how long it takes to have all the alcohol out of your system and your nervous system okay. to respond back and so, on. so it does vary but the more you practice something that's the most important thing that you can do and, and that actually applies to good habits as well so like taking journaling or having people write down that journaling is one of those things that people write pages on the first time, good intentions, and then it, they don't do any more. So the exactly. goal is al- always write less than you want to. And uh, a frequency is more important. This goes for self monitoring in general. A frequency is more important than duration. So I'd rather that you write down one sentence every day than write a page twice a week. That's because it's rep- habits come from repetition and the same is with exercise. So that really leads into this next strategy in the habit formation is the routine or the ritual behind the habit. So if the, if, the, if the trigger is the bottle of wine in the refrigerator, the routine or the ritual is getting a glass, I pour my glass, I sit down, I put the TV on, I'm, I'm having some attentional distraction, so I'm not really aware of how much I'm drinking. And I go through this little routine to eventually get the payoff or the reward, which is the third piece of a habit, which is the buzz or feeling a bit lighter or my feelings go away, or I've, I've been able to uh, 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 stabilize or upturn the boat of the kind of the mindset, so I'm back to feeling nice again. And so what we need to do is to change, not just triggers, but change our routines. So this might be, for example, changing where you keep things. Uh, If you've ever been in the position where you're trying to cut down on unhealthy food or drinking, and then the moment you go away to a stay in a hotel room or someone else's house, the craving seems to change as well according to your physical surroundings. It's because the routines that we go in, they become habituated to our environment. So it might sound silly, but you can rearrange furniture, you you can change where you keep certain foods, so that when I'm opening a certain drawer to find something or where I keep things in the refrigerator, it's no longer there. I'm trying to disrupt that kind of auto autopilot that gets me to the point where I'm sitting on the couch with a second glass of wine. I'm trying to have to bring it into conscious thought. So, okay, where, where's that again? What have I done with that? And that makes you more likely to be aware of what you're doing. So that's really important. Uh, the thing is about the uh, one of the great strategies if you've never tried it to cut down on drinking is to start drinking carbonated water mm-hmm. so if you replace it with fizzy water preferably not in single-use plastic but soda streams or glass or bottle is great but uh, what fizzy water does it's quite interesting it, it has a obviously there's some sort of uh, uh, oral compensation for it you're putting something in your mouth so it's not just like i'm trying to you know pray away the cravings i'm doing something but the carbonation gives me a sense of satiation, of fullness. There's a mouthfeel for carbonation in your water, which can very likely mimic the mouthfeel of beer or something, something so, so on. So you're trying to find replacements in your routine. So the reward, for example, drinking, it might not be because I actually like just feeling a little bit tipsy. It might just be that I'm bored. I want to feel I like having something in my hand. I like sipping something, and that feels kind of comforting. It's called displacement behavior often. So you need to have things or snacks or drinks that are less energy dense, less harmful to you that you can replace. So that's a really important piece to the, to the craving part. And I will say that any behavior that we identify that we want to start doing, think of the smallest possible version chunk of that. So most people, when they try and tackle a big change, I'm going to change my diet and you eat, this is the New Year's Day resolution, New Year's, Eve, new Year's uh, Day resolution right. phenomenon that, that, lasts through September, that lasts through February the 8th and then it's gone. Yeah. And because most of us don't have the coping skills to have such an upheaval in our lifestyle change, but more importantly, we take on something too big. Yeah. And there's a new science, there's a great book by a guy called James Clear called Atomic Habits. He's written about this extensively, another one called The Power of Habit by Charles Duke. Evidence-based, science-based strategies that say, the smallest version of that behavior, and what does it mean by small? Something you can, doesn't take you, uh, 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 something you can do in under two minutes is a good way to think about small. Exercise is the same, I wanna start exercising. Don't go out and try and walk for half an hour, an hour. Walk for two minutes around the block. You don't have to change your clothes and repetition is important so 2 minutes a day every day is way better from a habit generation perspective than trying to do 45 minutes once a week we're trying to build wow. a habit so use that strategy the tiny habits so i break anything down into tiny tiny chunks is going to help you backed by science and it works
1: that's what I learned too. It's the seven-step health pyramid that I wrote, the ebook, which again anyone who's listening can can get access on HealCircle.org. That's what it's about. It's about what small, tiny changes yeah. can you make? And we also recommend don't make all changes at the same time. Pick one thing. So, is it sleep? Is it your mind? Is it your diet? Is it your detox? Is it your movement? What is the one thing you want to? Work on for this week. We always say pick it as a one week thing. Mm-hmm. For one week, this is what you're going to do. And I love what you're suggesting. Like, write one line in your journal. You don't have to think of journaling as a huge time investment. Like, I need to write pages. What am I even going to say? You're already talking yourself out of it. So I, I always say just show up for it, right? So if Absolutely.
0: Journal, Absolutely. Just
1: show up. Sit down, write Please? one word, and you're done. Call it a service. one
0: thing. And there's nothing too small. We, we use in, uh, in, in our practice, we use something called a SEEDS journal, and the SEEDS is an acronym just for, you know, sleep and exercise and eating and drinking and stress and so on. And we say, okay, what for each one of these domains of your health, write one thing that takes less than two minutes that you could do, start doing today or tomorrow for each of them. And you don't necessarily tackle all of them now. But you start to say, and you, the nice thing about this is that it enables us to give ourselves a little grade as well. You've either done something, you've either done this little two minute thing or you haven't, nice. and at the end of the week or the end of the day, you can say there are seven of them. What was my score out of seven? And then the next step, once you've sort of got a handle on, for example, leaving a glass of water by your bedside when you go to bed to encourage hydration, it's a great trigger for to drink. I see a full glass of yeah. appetizing water, you know, or in a nice glass next to my bedside. Yes. Um, so once you've been able to do that, then think about the, when you're ready to take the next step, again, just a two, another two minute behavior, do something called a habit stack. And a habit stack is simply like a jigsaw puzzle. So if you imagine the first thing you've done, the glass of water by your bedside, a habit stack would be a behavior that adds onto that existing behavior. So you're chaining together a sequence of behaviors that. On their own don't probably matter that much in terms of a small little thing but over time these add up so rather than trying to target something to do with hydration meaning I'm gonna okay take a glass of uh, water to bed at night and then I'm also going to try and remember to have cold water in my car take a class next to that glass of water on my bed stand, is to say okay one thing I can do is I don't let myself get out of bed until the glass is empty Right, so there you go. That's a little habit stack. The first thing is glass of water there. Don't even want you to drink it. Two minute behavior, fill a nice glass of water, put it by your bedside when you go to bed. Second habit is to make sure that you're not allowed to get up until it's empty. Uh, So that's a habit stack. And you do this through each of the behaviors that you want to try and change. Tiny little interest theory of behavior change, that over time these things add up into much bigger changes.
1: I love that. Can you share an example or two of success stories? Maybe, because people love hearing, well, how did somebody else do and what, what did they do? What worked? Any, any case examples you could share with
0: that? Yeah, so uh, a good example is um, a client of mine who struggled with uh, food cravings and wanting to cut down alcohol two things that were real priorities. We did a seeds journal uh, with her, so we identified across the domains of sleep, exercise, eating, small two-minute behaviors. So the first was to have uh, uh, get alcohol uh, out of the house during the week, or it was locked okay. away somewhere. It's a very simple thing that she could do in a few minutes. The second thing was to buy a soda stream or buy some glasses of carbonated water, Uh, and have them ever present and visible. So don't have them hidden in a bottom drawer, have them where you can see them, trigger control. When you come back from work or you sit down and watch the TV, the goal, you give yourself a drinking target. I wanna try and drink that liter of water or the 16 ounces of water before I do X, whatever that happens to be, before a certain time comes, or it might even be if you're trying to cut down and not abstain completely, is that after I've had one glass of water, I'm gonna to commit to drinking 24 ounces of water before I'm allowed to think about whether I have a second glass. So those two things were really effective. The craving part for food, again, the food-neutral visualizations helped a ton, and the nice thing about a lot of these behaviors is that they're contagious, is that when you do start to do one thing and you're really feeling as though you're mastering it and you're building your confidence for change, which is really another really important piece, you're less likely to want to do other things that are bad for you because this is the, do- the snowball of dopamine is working to now. Okay, I can do this. I'm changing my lifestyle. I'm becoming healthier. And the more and more you do this, actually, the easier it becomes. The hardest thing to do is to start. That's the hardest thing. There's nothing harder than getting off the couch for the first time and eating well for the first time. It feels a chore it's painful it's often not very really nice to do if you can get through that initial phase it gets easier and that and we, uh, we now know why because of the, rewar, the way that the reward system in the brain so and that really worked for her she had remarkable uh, luck with that strategy and then we started to go into to do some challenges and challenges are always great a seven day a one month and one of the ones that we chose that was actually fairly ambitious was committing do, she was already fairly active, but not intermittently active. We committed to doing five kilometers of movement every single day. Nice. That might seem a lot, right? Five kilometers of movement. So I might need a pedometer. So it doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be, it's a combination of all things. Um, but you were able to measure, so whether you do it. So that might be a combination of actually exercise, of walking your dog, of taking a break at lunch and walking around the park instead of, you know, uh, just eat, eating at your desk or so on to try and accumulate things. So in combination with the simple trigger control, having a very small a behavior that you can do every single day. And if there's a group that you can follow as well, challenges are always better done with a group oh, and why it's because the human brain is wired to to compare yourself to other, compare itself to other people. So, This is why I'm a huge fan of committing to little groups of challenges where you all try and do things together, you share warts and all, how you're doing, the failures, success stories. These are really important behavioral science-backed strategies that work. So one one of the uh, unfortunate consequences, and doesn't turn out to be that unfortunate, when you drink a lot of water, you need to go to the bathroom a lot more. So it's a little forced activity break, whether you like it or not. So as you drink more water, you can use it as a 90 second activity break. You go to the bathroom a lot more, get, you're getting more steps. And then you can also start to another habit stack is once I've been to the bathroom, I can now, I'm going to walk a longer way round back to my desk, an extra two minutes. And now I've got in a three to four minute activity break. And I've done that six or eight times a day. These small amounts, again, it's about habit formation, are not inconsequential. And that fits in with a science of behavior change. Two minutes or less than I could do. That That doesn't seem too difficult, and it's a nice consequence of drinking a lot of food.
1: Wow, this has been fantastic, uh, Dr. Simon. As we wrap up, any last piece of advice for someone who's out there who needs to make um, pretty dramatic changes to their lifestyle because they want to beat cancer, they want to beat diabetes, they want to beat heart disease, and they're struggling with these changes. Any final piece of advice that you mm-hmm. haven't shared already?
0: Well, other than don't be alarmed, everyone struggles internally. It's a, it's a feature of the human condition. Start small and make sure that what you're trying to do really is develop good habits, which always really begin small. Don't worry about letting things out, having this chimp purge ahead of time. And then if it starts to become really complicated there are some other strategies that work a lot a lot are a lot more effective for really resist behavior or challenges that are really resistant to other things that you've tried for example we know in the science of willpower that your willpower your ability to resist temptation or not give into cravings is greatest in the morning so if there are difficult things that you need to do behaviorally you're almost always better doing them in the first thing in the morning. Your brain is wired to cope with difficult challenges first thing in the morning. There's some neurochemical reasons why that is. So I would say if there are things that you've been putting off or you find a struggle, trying to do them as early as you can is gonna be better than trying, I'll do that when I get home from work or go to the gym or have that. Your willpower you know, it drops precipitously as the day goes on.
1: Because we get tired. Thank, Thank you now. so much again, Dr. Simon, for the rest of you. Yes. you know, Just make a commitment to yourself right now that you're gonna pick one small change to add, two minutes or less, in any one of, as he mentioned, SEEDS acronym, right? So sleep, or eating, or drinking. Exercise,
0: that's exactly right.
1: Exercising, just pick one small change, get started. It's the hardest to get started. Once you get started, I know you're gonna finish this journey fast and get your health back. This is Rena Jada. thank you for listening in, tuning in to Healthier Podcast. Check out HeelCircle.org and I will see you smiling on the next episode. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.